Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. In many parts of the world, and for multiple generations of people, social media has become synonymous with the internet. Social media has fundamentally changed the way we interact not only with each other, but with brands, teams, and even our favorite athletes. Like many other tech services, social media is cyclical, with the market share from different players constantly in flux. While it's seen its fair share of controversy, there's little denying that TikTok currently sits atop the social media heap, at least in terms of engagement. Our guest today, Tyler Webb, is someone who not only understands how to create that engagement on TikTok, but this also creates incredibly compelling sports content that drives that engagement. Tyler is the co-founder of Uncle Charlie Marketing Company, where he leads the creative side of the operation. Uncle Charlie focuses on go-to-market strategy for clients and the implementing of that go-to-market strategy. Tyler got his first experience with organic social media while in high school, where he built a twitter theme page that reached over 150,000 followers by the time he graduated. Prior to starting Uncle Charlie, Tyler had roles with Prep Network, Social Works Digital, and the Back Pocket Podcast, along with extensive freelance work. Tyler is a natural born creator and outside of his work with Uncle Charlie has amassed his own enormous social media following by creating content around the intersection of sports, business, culture, and society. In full disclosure, I'm personally such a huge fan of Tyler's content that I thought he'd be an incredible guest for the podcast. So I reached out to him directly and we're so fortunate that he agreed to be a guest. So we hope you all enjoy this conversation with Tyler Webb. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, Bryce, I'm excited for it. It's really exciting for me because in full disclosure, I reached out to you randomly because I'm a fan of your content and the content that you create and you were happy enough and, and willing to, to come on with us. So it's exciting for me to be able to dig into this content that you create because it's so, we talked about this before we started recording, it has a level of depth, but still being concise. And I think that's what's so amazing about that content. But can you let listeners know how you got started doing that? Yeah, so I have always been interested in creating content. I I take the story all the way back to when I was 14, 15 years old as a sophomore in high school, which is, we were just talking about how old we feel. That's about 10 years ago for me now. So I've been doing this for over a decade. And uh, I was running a Twitter account with a couple of friends from high school called I Live for Football. And it was one of these content aggregator style accounts, you know, where you repost football highlights and memes and and different stuff like that. Uh, But we grew the account to 150,000 followers. And and I did that all the way into my first couple of years of college. And it was really eye opening, eye opening experience for me on on a couple of levels. So one, it was like, oh, wow, you can, you know, make money on line, you know, that was kind of, I grew up digitally native, but seeing that there was a career that could be extrapolated from something that I was already doing was really cool. Uh, another level of it was people saw something in that. Like I felt like a high school kid that was just posting stuff on on the internet. I was even creating the content, right? So my part in that was really easy. But it was in this inherent ability that I can't really still wrap my arms around to like build a community and grow a following that people saw as valuable. And even though I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I was able to sit in conversations and in rooms with adults that I felt like I didn't have any business being around, but they saw that ability as really unique. And then they were willing to you know, pay us for it and later pay me for it um, on an individual basis. And so that was really cool to see like, okay, I have a skill here that is marketable and is 
valuable. Uh, and I didn't think about it like that for a really long time. Um, and so that account actually ended up getting, getting shut down due to copyright violations. You know, Twitter has all these rules or at the time, and they probably still do around, um, you know, song copyright violations when we were just reposting videos with popular songs in them and, you know, third strike and you're out sort of a deal. And so, uh, it was a bummer because it was something that we had been working towards for a long time. I think it probably happened at a good time because there was really no end in sight. It was like, okay, you grow this kind of account. There's really not a huge monetization opportunity. You know, maybe we're making a couple hundred bucks a month. And so it was a great opportunity opportunity for me to look at what I was doing now in college and say, okay, what's what's next? And so for me, that looked like going back to some of these people that thought what we were doing with this Twitter account was really impressive and saying, Hey, I would like to offer my services to help run social for your business. And that launched me into doing freelance social media all throughout college as my part-time job. I always reflect to say I was really lucky I didn't have to bust tables or be a bar back. I could just sit in my dorm and work on social media accounts um, in, in, in my spare time and, and make an extra couple thousand dollars a month um, freelancing throughout college. And so you know, that was always something that was super interesting to me. Uh, I, I always kind of felt this pull or tried to strike this balance of like doing social media and co- content for clients and then doing it for myself. Nothing that I ever did for myself really stuck. You know, I always found myself talking about sort of the same topics that you hear a lot of people online talking about, like business and entrepreneurship and marketing and social media marketing, and nothing that was particularly particularly compelling for anybody else. And I was at the time some 18, 19, 20 year old kid that didn't have a ton of experience and probably didn't have much to say and didn't really understand how to grow an audience or grow a following for himself. So it was, you know, making content for myself was always something that was on the back burner um, behind client work. And, uh, you know, eventually COVID hit and, and we were just talking about this, Bryce, you know, while I was an undergrad, it was a junior and a, it, it's coming in. A, I remember COVID hit when I was on my junior year spring break. Um, we mm-hmm. flew back kind of under this weird guise of like, what's the school going to be canceled for a couple of weeks? And then school is canceled for, or school is not in person for the remainder of my undergraduate time. And it was a really tough time because that was going into the summer before my senior year, which as many students probably understand is a really pivotal time to get an internship that could hopefully lead to a full-time job. Uh, and I did have an internship lined up at a you know, sports event and content startup here in Minneapolis that I was super pumped for. And kind of fell through, obviously, since events weren't happening in the summer of 2020. And so that summer I looked and I said, okay, I was doing a lot of part-time freelance work all throughout college. Maybe I can go to some of these people, go to a couple more people, build up a client roster that is equivalent in both time and money to what a full-time internship would have been. And I freelanced full-time that summer of 2020 and it went really well. And I really enjoyed the flexibility and you know ability to work on different projects in different industries. And uh, coming into my senior year, I, I decided pretty early on that this is what I wanted to do coming out of school. There weren't a ton of job prospects lined up for me anyways. And so I figured I'd strike while the iron was hot. And I graduated in December of 2020 and went f- into freelancing full time. And that led me to be my business partner. And, and now we work primarily in sports. We run a sports marketing agency called Uncle Charlie and we work with professional sports teams and leagues and organizations across the country to do their organic content and distribution and it was in that that I felt that pull again to say, okay, we're doing a lot of this for clients. I want to get back into doing some of it for myself. And that spawned the type of content that you now see me making on TikTok. And originally the idea or the connection or maybe even the rationalization for it was if I can be a recognizable figure that talks about sports and business, there might be some downstream effect into my agency, which does work in sports and business and marketing. And 
that has now, as we were talking about earlier, like taken on an entire life of its own where there is a you know viable path forward for me to either be a full-time content creator if I wanted to, or be a full-time marketing uh, agency owner or do some combination of both where they can coexist in a, in a state of symbiosis. But regardless, I'm you know in a super fortunate position to even have that decision. And um, it, it, it has sort of gone out and ex- extended and evolved past what I ever could have imagined. I want to come back to the Uncle Charlie component of it and the interplay between what you do for yourself and like you said, the client work back to the college component. I, I do feel for you. We talked about before we started recording, not only the job prospects, the internship prospects, but some formidable time in your life where you're really figuring out what you want to do and who you want to be. And it's got to be so hard to be stuck in many ways, but even back further to look at the foresight you had from a social media perspective and understand, wait a minute, this could be something that I could do to generate revenue. I remember I'm going to date myself here now too, but the Facebook started when I was an undergrad and promise you this, we weren't thinking about monetizing it. We were really fortunate that we didn't have doing a bunch of stupid things that lived forever on the internet. So it's amazing to get that foresight, but I think it's really important for our listeners and, and folks to understand we talk about freelancing. I was the McKenzie study recently talked about how in not too distant future, something around 60% of jobs could be freelance or gig type jobs of driving it yourself. And I think it's amazing how you've parlayed that. But did that start and build into what you're doing today from internships and so on? Or was it more driven by yourself of, hey, I'm, I like this. I know how to do this well. And really just pounding the pavement and going out and saying, I can do this for you. Yeah. So early on, it was a bit of pounding the pavement, as you say. Um, I, I was fortunate to have, you know, I was fortunate to be in a position where you're a freshman and sophomore in college, and a lot of you know students can probably relate to this. There, there aren't a lot of expectations on you to make a bunch of money. So even if I was only making a couple hundred bucks a month from these social media management clients, which isn't a lot of money in the grand scheme of things. Let's call it 500 bucks a month to post every single day for a, a local business. That's that's not a lot of money. You know, we as an agency charge charge much, much more for that now. But at the time, there was no expectation for me to be making any more than 500, 1,000 bucks a month. And the fact that I was able to do it on my own time and you know not have to work odd hours and work around my school schedule was definitely a benefit. And so that combined with the fact that the lack of ex- expectations meant anything that came to me, I could, I was in a high le- higher, higher leverage position to say yes or no. So I wasn't out there like scrambling for work because I was fortunate early on to have a couple clients that were interested in an inbound sort of way. And I took them on and I was already making, you know, call it 1500 bucks a month. And so anything that came after that, I, I felt comfortable enough to say yes or no to based on how much time I had, how much more money I wanted to make. And, you know, early on, I would say I was a bit of a menace in in terms of like wanting to make as much money as possible. That's I think a a natural human instinct. But, um, you know, I I was fortunate to kind of build that client Rolodex really early and and just try to establish relationships with people in a way that could serve me. And, you know, I'll be honest, I really tapped into those relationships and leaned on them heavily in 2020 when I then did what was a lot of outbound to say, Hey, I'm looking to build up my client roster. I'm looking this summer to freelance full time. Is there any work you need me to do? Can I up the commitment I already have to you? That that sort of thing. So, you know, for me, it was this combination of relationship building, not burning bridges, and then relying on those um, connections when I really needed them. Um, but it's, there's a part of your question there that I want to explore a little bit because you talked about like evolving a freelance sort mm-hmm. of work style into what I do now. Um, forever 
or not forever for a year or so when I was freelancing on my own after graduating, I, I kind of felt like I kept running into this brick wall. I, I'll use glass ceiling, but I don't mean it in the, in the colloquial sense, but mm-hmm. I kept running into this, like, you can't go any further. Like I'm yeah. one man with 24 hours in the day. You know, I can try to hire help, but I really felt stuck because at the end of the day, it was my name on the business. I, I didn't get creative with my nomenclature. I called myself Tyler Webb LLC. So it was, you know, it was Tyler Webb that you were working with. Right. And so I, I felt like there was an inherent limitation in that, that if you hired to me, you know, to, to do any sort of social media marketing services, you were expecting to work with me. So there was a limitation on who I could hire, who I could have client facing, how much of the work I had to do versus how much I could delegate out. And I felt stuck or capped at a certain amount of income. And aside from raising my prices, which is always an option, you know, I, I felt like I wanted to grow this thing beyond just me. Um, and, and fortunately, during that 2021 year, I was fortunate enough to meet my my business partner, Jake, who, um, you know, we we clicked on a lot of different levels. The first being he sort of saw this vision of, hey, you know, we're both freelancing right now. What if we combined efforts went under a different name and then could start scaling out our work, you know, under the traditional agency model instead of just being individuals. So that was exciting to me. But he also is sort of the yin to my yang in the sense that he is really project management and and systems focused. And I'm much more of a creative. Uh, He is totally okay fielding client calls at any time of day. I can get a little annoyed when somebody interrupts my my workflow. So we we worked together really well on a couple of clients early, just as you know, ten ninety nine contractors to each other. And we looked up at the end of twenty twenty one and said, you know, we we're doing quite a bit of business here. You know, at that point, we were probably doing six figures worth of our business together. And we said we should probably formalize this partnership beyond just paying each other as contractors. And so mm-hmm. that's how Uncle Charlie started. But it was really born out of this notion that I felt like I couldn't go any further and I was capped at a certain amount of, you know, dollars or a certain amount of work. Like, and I, and I, I'll be honest, like I, I didn't want to work more, you know, I wanted yeah. to earn more money, but I didn't want to work more. And I felt like those things were at odds when I was just working alone. Yeah, it is. And it is a hard dichotomy to pull that back and forth of wanting to scale, scaling a business is incredibly hard. And it's one thing that we often see in the tech space of, wonderful startup ideas, but then when you get to scaling, it becomes difficult. But I think that you've done an amazing job of building that freelance component into what you do today in the overall marketing piece that you do with it. And actually, I was going to ask you this, where the name come from? So Uncle Charlie is a colloquial name for a curveball. So we're able to put the fun spin, pun intended, on saying, you know, with our marketing, you're, you're getting something different. You're not just seeing a fastball right down the middle. Um, I was really drawn personally to this traditional air quotes aspect of like, you could have some really cool old timey typography. Um, our icon, um, is like this old baseball player with a mustache winding up for a pitch. So there's like this fun sort of traditional style, uh, that can be built into the brand. But, um, you know, to us, it was cool to have some sort of like person still involved, you know, like we're, we're, we're a super relationship business. So to, to say, Uncle Charlie almost insinuates you're working with a person, but you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're working with a, with a lot of different people. I think that is cool for two reasons. Like you said, it insinuates you're working with a person. A lot of what you do is relationship built, but also sports is the same way. There's a lot mm-hmm. to do in sports from a relationship perspective, meaning that it's a small business overall. And so you get to see a lot of the same people. And I think that's a smart approach to that. But at a macro level, Uncle Charlie is a marketing company 
you mm-hmm. talked about all the things you did from a social media perspective and, and freelance. If you talk about the services that from a marketing perspective that you provide, is what does that span? So when we started, it really was just what I offered in my own freelance world applied to sports specific clients. So that looked like social media management to start. Uh, quickly, we realized that there were was an uncontrolled variable in the content that clients were giving us. So, you know, I'll give you an example. We work with a couple of clients who had a really good understanding of content and worked with us as a downstream effect of working with a videographer or working with a photographer. And they said, we have all this great content. We don't know what to do with it. So they hire us and, and we distribute it. Or we'd have a client that says, I know I need to do marketing. I know it's 2020, 2021. I know my marketing needs to be done online. Can you help me with that? And so when that's the prompt, you have to reverse engineer back into what the content looks like. And oftentimes there was no content. And so we always say, if the input is crap, the output's going to be crap. And we're judged on the output. We're not judged on the input. So we have to then reverse engineer our way back to making sure the input's really good. So what started as just social media marketing services, which is you know what I call just purely distribution, worked into trying to control for what the content could look like. And so that's when we started hiring and, and contracting out with really talented videographers and photographers and graphic designers to make sure that our input was solid so that the output on which we were judged was was also really good. And, and, and that has sort of tentacled out and back to this relationship component. Uh, the one thing that Jake does so, so, so well and has enabled our growth to come primarily through referrals and word of mouth is that we get really involved in the marketing function of a business. And so to my point of a lot of companies saying, we need to do marketing, we know that has to exist online. It can also look like a lot of different things, right? I think social is a great place to start in the year 2023 for a lot of businesses, but you also need to make sure you're nurturing those leads through paid digital, through email. And when we come into a marketing organization, they often will think, you know, posting on, Instagram is the silver bullet to make a huge impact on their business. But oftentimes it's just one subcomponent of a much larger plan that needs to involve those other components. And so we'll find ourselves recommending and then invariably executing on their email component, you know, their email marketing or their their paid digital. But you know, for us it, it just comes from a point of need. We're not trying to come in and upsell on, hey, we think you could do email if if we don't think that's a valuable service. As we just try to get really involved in the the marketing function of the business and provide our our best feedback. And if that's a service we offer, great. If it's not, you know, we, we don't offer a lot of services that a, a company might need. Like if they need to go through a full website redesign or a full, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> graphic brand identity redesign, like that's not something that we specialize in. So we're happy to to refer them out. And it's it's all what we find is as best because a lot of those different aspects that I just described are upstream from social and the thing that we do that we're you know we're best at the, the social component doesn't work if those other things aren't already in line so we're at the same time looking out for ourselves but you know we know at the end of the day it'll be best for the people that we work with staying in that lane really helps yeah. in that sense because you've proven that that lane it works well for you and, and and do a great job creating that content that is how i found you from a listener perspective to understand Tyler, I don't know the number of followers that you have on TikTok, but creates incredible TikTok content that focuses on sports and sports business and really interesting pieces in sports. But can you give us a view into the 25,000 foot view of what you would call the content you should create on TikTok? Yeah. So I, I refer to myself as a sports business content creator. That was born yeah. from the fact that I deal with sports marketing on a daily basis. I felt like that was something that I could speak to. 
but it also overlapped in this Venn diagram of something that I was interested in and could see myself making content on um, for, for a long time. All of my content ventures beforehand that I, I hope have since been buried in the depths of the internet weren't super compelling and also were out of my depths in a way that one, I probably wasn't the most knowledgeable person at. And two, I just wasn't super interested in creating content. And after a couple of weeks of creating content around, you know, again, like just this general entrepreneurship marketing rick and roll that you see, I just kind of was burnt out and just wasn't super into it. And that was probably a factor of the fact uh, by the factor that it didn't work well either. And, and that's sort of how I describe this Venn diagram of the content I create. It's like something I enjoy, something I can see myself doing for a long time and something that performs well. And if I can find the center of those three circles, then I, I think it's, you know, it's a home run. And that's sort of what I found. I certainly think you have found that. I think one of the most interesting things to me is the topics, the content itself. It's not, it's engaging in the way it's done, but also the topics themselves are really interesting. I find myself these days on two ends of the spectrum. Either I grab headlines, whether I'm reading mm -hmm. or Twitter or wherever it is, or I'll sit down and read something really long form. I've missed that middle zone. And I think the content that you create hits that really well because it's the next layer down. It's not, here's who was drafted in the NBA draft. It is, let's examine a story that we talked about earlier was the Minnesota Vikings and, the, and paying off their loan with the pull tab component of it. There's things yeah. that you've done around NIL. And how do you come up with those? How do you figure out what you want to investigate and explore? So I, I do appreciate the compliments there, Bryce. I think what I try to do, so back to this Venn diagram visualization, is find the parts of these stories that I think are really compelling. You know, I, I don't find it compelling that Victor Wembignano went number one overall in the NBA draft last night. Like that's a, a headline, but as you say, that you can read and more compelling people can be first to that he does to keep his body in shape or those types of things. Exactly. And so that's, you know, that's where I draw a topic out of where I, I try to dig a layer deeper and ask a, a why question or a how question to pull you know, an interesting insight out of. Um, I, I'm also just interested in things outside of sports. So one of the videos that I'm most proud of, and it's certainly not my my best performing video, but it's a video that at the core is about urban planning, something I'm just naturally interested in and, and how we've designed cities and communities in America specifically to not be very human centric, but to be very car centric. And mm -hmm. I used sports as a vehicle to make a point that wasn't at all about sports. And that's my favorite part. You know, that's, why, that's why I love sports just generally is because it's a really great connective tissue for people who might not see eye to eye on a lot of different things, but we can you know come together every Sunday or come together every Thursday night around um, a, a common cause. But I also think it can be used as a vehicle to talk about issues that are much more important outside of sports. And, and that's what I do. I, like, I hate when I get on shows like this or interviews like this and people are like, who do you have winning the NBA finals? And so clearly you have not seen my content. Like I, I'm not the guy that breaks down the X's and O's. I'm, I'm not the guy who cares about schematics. I'm, I'm a guy who tries to dig in deeper to, you know, the stories that are happening beyond what's going on in the court. So back to this video about urban planning, it, the, the, the crux of the video was asking, why do most stadiums in America look like, uh, you know, I said, look like this, but what I was describing or what I was showing on the screen was um, in Kansas City, Kauffman Stadium and Arrowhead Stadium mm -hmm. are located right next to each other amidst a sea of what has to be hundreds of thousands of parking spots. And when you take an aerial shot, when there's nobody at the stadiums, it's one of the more like post-apocalyptic AmeriCorps looking things. Yeah, it's like 
a wasted piece of, I don't even know how big it is, probably like a hundred plus acres of land that get used during the football season once a week and then sit vacant in a, a sea of concrete and there's nothing around it. I've been there before. You basically, you know, hop off a, a highway or a, a county road and you park and you tailgate, you go to the game and you leave and there, there's nothing to do or see around the stadium. And so you know, the point I was making was, you know, why do we describe, why do we design places like this when objectively places, and I, and I use the reference of, of colleges, uh, are, are much more enjoyable of a game day experience. Like it's, especially schools in the South, somewhat ironically, have some of the most walkable areas around their stadium where there's bars and there's, you know, there are people tailgating, but it's super lively and it's fun to be around because there's things to see and there's like places to explore. And you're not just sitting in traffic, sitting in line, driving to a parking lot, sitting in traffic, sitting in line and leaving. Right. And so the point of that video wasn't, hey, we should design stadiums better as much as it was, hey, we should design the places that we exist as humans better. And sports were just the mechanism because people, you know, what I found Bryce is that people feel like they're not qualified. And, and these are like the smart people online. There's a lot of people online who feel like they're qualified to talk about anything, but the smart True. people online feel like they're not qualified to have an opinion about something. Like how many times have you heard like, oh, that's just politics. Like, I don't know much about that. I don't care to learn much about that. But the, like a lot of these are issues that really affect us. And so if you can use sports with which people feel enabled to have an opinion about because they have personal experiences with to relay more complicated issues, then by proxy, they can feel like they can have opinions on these more complicated issues. A lot of people have experiences going to games and sitting in traffic mm -hmm. and probably thinking to themselves, why do I have to sit in all this traffic to go to this game? And that is pulling at a thread of a much more complex issue that I kind of want to try to pull out of people. And so that's not, that's how I come to a lot of these ideas is I, I try to find that thread that I have inside of me and pull it out. And in doing so, I, I think it reveals a lot of issues beyond sports to a lot of other people. It absolutely does. And I think it deals with community issues. Those are the communities that you live in. You juxtapose that experience in Kansas City. And a Chiefs game is incredible. They're really mm -hmm. cool. But then it it is a strange dichotomy if you come out and you're just in a big parking lot in the middle of nowhere. Juxtapose that to living in Chicago and the arenas are situated in neighborhoods. There's no better example than Wrigley or yeah. even the United Center. Different, completely different neighborhood, but situated in the city. And I think you're right that those things are really important from a societal perspective, but become much more approachable when you put the lens of sports on them. Another one that you've done recently is around sports washing. And, and I think that's a really important topic and one that even more fraught with peril than the urban planning and, and communities, but a really important topic in the sense of where this investment is coming from, because it's not going to be very long before we see that investment start to creep into the major American sports, the NFL, the NBA, and, and so on. I think Adam Silver has hinted at some of those things recently that yes, doesn't yeah. be there. And so someone like yourself creating a spotlight on that level of, I don't know if sports washing is the exact right term to use, but it certainly is something that happens. And I think it's really cool to dig into that content. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of issues like that. You don't, often think about through a critical lens beyond sports. Like I think to, to my point, like a lot of people will see that and their analysis of the subject will end with, okay, how does this affect my favorite sports team? But there are infinite more layers beyond how does this affect your favorite sports team or your favorite mm -hmm. sports league? You know, one of my favorite threads to pull on recently has been this white glove treatment that billionaire sports team owners specifically get in this country. And my favorite punching bag recently has been John Fisher, who owns the yeah. Oakland A's. But there's a lot of examples. Um, and you know, rightfully to my point, so in many Yeah, ways. rightfully so. You know, what he's doing with the team is annoying. And 
sad. And again, a lot of people would end with, he's not putting a good product on the field. But if you look deeper into how that affects your life beyond your fandom for the Oakland days specifically, you see that there are a lot of things that are happening on a economic and political level that you might disagree with, but you got to peel back that curtain of, or you got to like go beyond that threshold of how does this affect the players that I root for and the Jersey that I wear, you know what I mean? So there, there are a lot of issues like that, that I just kind of hope to spark something in people to think, Oh, there, there is more to this. And I am qualified enough to have an opinion about it. I think you are. And I also think that it's approachable and that's what makes it easy. What I mean by that is you can talk about those same topics and hit somebody over the head with it really blatantly. This is ruining our communities. Wouldn't it be better if our arenas were here and we didn't have taxpayer money that was, or all of those things, but people are averse to that. They don't want to be talked at, or they don't want to be told what to do and think. Yeah. I think, like you said, if you frame it in the way of, Hey, this is a sports component to this. And you frame it in that way. It's much more approachable for people, whether or not that they take action on that, at least subconsciously, they're understanding that there's something there. This may be a little inside baseball, but for someone who watches that content and consumes it, it appears that it takes a long time to create. What is the process like in creating that content? Yeah, so it it, it does take a long time. You know, that's that's intentional. So I'll walk you through it. There's this ideation process that is ever existing. You know, I'll just kind of walk around and read things and consume things and think about things and write them down if I if I remember to do so to come back to later. Uh, you know, I, I go to a couple sources for inspiration if, if I lack any. You know, Front Office Sports is sort of the preeminent sports business publication. Um, they often write, you know, really good content, exclusive and just more recap based content on stuff that's happening. And those are really fun places to go and look for these threads to pull on. Um, and, and once I have something there, I'll sit down and I'll just start writing. And there's not like this outline research to script process that goes on. It really becomes like a, at this point, a like flow of consciousness state of writing where I'm just typing things out. I've gotten to the point where I understand how to write a good hook. It's a really component, really important component of these videos, which is the first line has to be something that draws people in and it has to be sensationalized, but not clickbaity. So the difference there is you lead with something that's shocking or juxtaposing, and then you have to go in and back it up. Clickbaiting would be, you know, my opinion, just lying about what you're about to say. Juxtaposing or sensationalizing is drawing two things at odds or saying something possibly controversial, but then going in and backing it up. So if I don't have a good hook, which is a first sentence of a video, I either have to find a way to rework it, or I have found myself just completely switching what the video is about. Um, I, I wish I had a, an example for you, but there have been times where I've gone in to write a video about one topic. And as I'm writing, I'm like, this isn't interesting. And I've written entire scripts and looked at it and said, this isn't good or interesting, or I have no good way to draw somebody into this. And so I have to kind of turn it back on its head and say, how can I create this in a way that is interesting in the first five seconds and then back into the rest of the story. And, and that's something I do often where maybe the opening line doesn't have a ton to do about what the rest of the video is about. But if I can draw you in and then at some point pivot on you and then get into the actual meat, I'm, I'm happy to do that. It, I think one great example is a, a video that I released on the NBA draft night in which I talk about Victor Wembignana's training routine. And the sensationalized part of it is that he spends $1.5 million on his training routine. I'll be honest, I don't know if that's true. What I do know is that LeBron James has talked about how he spent $1.5 million. And so I attach that number 
to Victor Wembanyama's name and I say something like he spends he might spend or you know I, I qualify it in some way and then I spend five seconds ten seconds talking about LeBron's routine and then I connect that into really quickly the rest of the topic which is Victor Wembanyama. So I found a way to sort of get you in and I just back into the rest of it. And that scripting process, along with the research that goes into it, takes me anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, you know, it kind of depends on how hard I have to look for some of the information and, and how quickly the, the words are flowing out of me in, in, in any given day. Um, and so I'll do that. I'll go and try to find relevant B-roll clips. You know, TikTok is obviously a really visual medium. So there's a lot that you can say and, and quite frankly, a lot that you should say without ex- actually explicitly saying it. And I'll write, you know, anywhere from you know, a thousand to 1500 words. And that often kind of comes out in a two to three minute long video on TikTok, which is pretty long for, for, you know, TikTok uh, videos, but there's a lot that you can sort of imply and say by the visuals that I try to be intentional with. And so I'll do that. Um, at the very beginning, as I was just starting this journey, I was also editing all the videos myself, which would take me the longest time, you know, for like two to four hours to edit a video. I'm, I'm by no means a, an expert video editor, but I, I wanted to be able to sort of dial in what I wanted to look to be. And then from there, it just is a matter of of posting, you know, coming up with some sort of compelling caption that at this point takes me about five to 10 minutes and then getting it out the door. Um, I've fortunately, as I started making even the slightest bit of money, um, it was nice to have my agency to sort of help funnel some some funding into hiring an editor because that took, you know, again, up to four hours of any of my day. And and that is not my full-time job. And so I, I realized very quickly, I could not be spending four hours a day on, on editing video. So I hired an editor, felt like I was taking one step back because I spent about a week, a week two weeks explaining what I wanted things to look like. I tried to come up with as comprehensive of, of a brand guide as I could, but there are just some small nuances you got to work through. But that one step back quickly felt like two steps forward because all of a sudden I have like a, I call them like my second brain in which I can upload a video, include some B-roll, include some notes in the margins, send it off to him. And he comes back with a video that looks great and even better than I could have ever edited it. And so at this point now, I, I, you know, I take the time to write and script and record. And that probably takes me anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. And then I get to send it out and I get to receive a fully edited video in return. And so I've sort of isolated the parts that I like to do. I love the researching. I love the writing and I get to hire out the parts that I'm not so good at, which is the editing. It'd be really interesting for someone that watched your content to go back and see if you could figure out where that switch was, where you were mm. editing and where it, it switched to that. But you're right. In thinking about that video you talked about with the NBA draft, I remember you now when you mentioned that saying at the beginning of the video, the amount of money he spent on. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I quickly forgot that because of the rest of the content in the video, the things about the stretching or the, the pregame warm up and all the things that he does to help take load off his feet. And I think that that's really interesting because as someone who grew up in Indiana and then Greg Oden, you even mentioned in the video, people like Kevin McHale or Bill Walton mm-hmm. having those problems. You can foresee it being something that he would have an issue with. So you're right. That hook, now that you say that, it's like, oh, I do see that how that happens, but then the rest of the content could be a diversion from that. The other thing that I've seen you do recently is you had a great video about the cost of attending a game and Mm, going out and doing an actual, I'm going to take public transit. I got a ticket because I was a student because that is an issue that all of us face. I have two kids taking a family of four to a game is expensive. And so it's really illuminating content and done a really good way of doing it firsthand. Are those things you look for? Do you want to do more of that? Or is it just kind of when the situation arises? I do want to do more of that. Um, so a couple of things I'll touch on there to, to the conversation of like how I come up with these topics. One of the 
when I pull threads, I try to have them rely heavily on sentiment. So people don't often have stats that just come out of their you know, head, like to the urban planning video, people don't know inherently that only 16% of NFL stadiums have bars, at least three bars and restaurants within a 10 minute walk. People don't know that stat, but they maybe feel like when they go to a stadium that they're in a sea of parking and that there's not a lot of things around them. And so that's something that they can relate to. And then I can provide the stat for them. Similarly to the baseball video, people maybe don't know that the average price to attend an MLB game is over $200, but they know that when they go, it feels expensive. You know, they know the beer feels like it costs too much and the drinks cost too much and the food costs too much. And so what my job is, is to tap into that sentiment that a lot of people have. And it's easy to become a sports fan too. So I live this stuff and then I can go and do the research and, and do the scripting and present it in a way that, oh, that's why, you know, oh, that makes sense. And so I, I try to get that. Oh, I felt this before. And then the relief of like, oh, that's, you know, it's like the surprise and delight. Like the surprise is somebody's feeling the same way I am. And the delight is he has the information to back up what I was already feeling. So your point about the going out and doing some of those videos, um, you know, that that's been a thing that I've wanted to do more of because I realize that there's a lot of guys that sit in a room somewhere and have good editing and talk about sports. And I don't want to, this ushers in a whole new conversation about like my identity as a creator. But right now I feel like I compete a lot on ideas and somebody can have a better idea than me. Somebody can have a better hook than me. Somebody can have better editing than me. And those are things that are increasingly becoming commoditized. You know, I, I want to be able to compete in a category of one, which is me. I want people to come to my videos and, and watch me because they like me. They like the way I present content. You know, they find me funny, witty, humorous, cute. I don't, I don't care, but like they, they, they're coming to me because they're, I'm a source that they um, have followed and have built a relationship with. And so in my opinion, even though that baseball video, you know, doesn't show a ton of my personality, it is a way for me to branch out and, and show that like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a person. I, have opinions on things. I have interests outside of sports. I have, uh, you know, you know, I, I have depth to me that, that is more than just me sitting in my room and in this really like white sterilized like way that you consume me. And so those are, are times for me to, to get outside of that place and, and, and show that a little bit more. I, mean, I think it's an interesting approach to it because it gives both sides. You get out in the community and you do those things, but then you still have the, the videos. And I wouldn't go as far as to say they look overproduced. You can certainly mm. tell when someone, there are things that are overproduced. You mentioned organic content. I think that you've really honed in on what organic content is and what that really means in a lot of ways. But I think an interesting question is, which directions do these go? And what I mean is, the marketing component that you and your partner have and continuing to build the content creator component of that, you can see the interplay of it. But mm -hmm. is that the ultimate goal is to have those things be interlaced or is there a direction of bifurcating those things and wanting to be more of a content creator, wanting to be more on the marketing side, or do they always have sort of an, an interplay between the two? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something I've wrestled with for the past six months now, quite a bit. I think at some point there is a separation, but I don't think they're ever completely separated. You know, I always see myself that I always think that I will be somewhat involved with Uncle Charlie. You know, I, like even in the last six months, I have my my job description looks a lot different than it did a year ago. You know, a year ago I was running client pages, creating content on a daily basis. Ninety percent of my time was taken up with client work, and ten percent of my time was sort of my other personal stuff. That has changed, and I would say now seventy percent of my time is on 
my own content creation. And 30% of my time is on client work, but that doesn't mean client work that is doing the posts and you know responding to the comments. It means overseeing the really talented people that we have now hired and help steer this ship at a 25,000 foot view rather than a 5,000 foot view. And so for me, it's always been, I, I, I don't remember where I heard this. It, it might've been Casey Neistat, but I don't want to misattribute. He basically said every day, if, if you're working towards doing more of the things you like to do and less of the things you don't like to do, you're progressing in your career. And I think, especially for somebody like me, who there is like no clear progression, like there's no promotion I'm going to get, right? Like I own the marketing agency. I'm a content creator. There's no like level above what I am doing now. And while for a lot of people, that seems really cool. It's also really daunting because it means there's no linear progression. I'm a human. I like patterns. I like to see this could be my next step. Here's are the, here's the timeline it's going to take, or here's the work it's going to take to get there. I sort of exist in this middle ground gray area that has no clear direction to it necessarily. And of course, you know, as a business, we have goals. And as a, as a person, I have goals, but it, sometimes it can feel like I'm just floating and existing and, and not like progressing anywhere. And so I try to anchor myself back down to, am I doing more of the things that I like to do and less of the things that I don't like to do? And I've now flipped that to see it really is a benefit to say, like, I have the power to change my job description and make what my daily routine or, you know, the stuff I'm working on on a daily basis, I have the power to make it look differently. And if I don't want to do something, I can work to transition out of it and work as a business owner to make sure I don't have to do as much of that. You know what I mean? So for me, there's always going to be this interplay. um, But that interplay is really centered around like what my desires are in the moment. And those are ever changing. And I have a general idea of where I want to be in five and 10 years. And uh, it kind of boils down to making more money and working less. But how that comes to be, I, I don't exactly know. I just know what I'd like to do now. And maybe in five, 10 years, what I'd like to do is going to be different. Like there's this inherent struggle as a content creator to say like, am I going to be a 35 year old guy and still making the same videos that I'm making now? Like it works because I'm kind of young and like, you know, have these interests. But when I have kids and a family and like, I'm not able to be as chronically online as I am now, like, do I lose a certain edge or do I lose my fastball, so to say? Um, and, I, and I don't know. So I'm not, I'm trying to like build around what I have now to prevent against that. But at the same time, I really enjoy what I'm doing now. And I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, age myself out of it too quickly. So maybe a non-answer, but I, I think it's like inherent in what I do that there are going to be ebbs and flows. And it's just going to be centered back around what my desires are six months from now, 18 months from now, five years from now. And I just kind of have to work to transition through those times the, the best I know how. I don't think it's a non-answer at all. I think it's a great answer in the sense that if you look at someone like myself, I would say the grass is always greener because I am someone that has had a very linear progression in their career. And there certainly is some level of comfort to that because you can always see that next milestone in front of you. Mm -hmm. But the flip of that is the creative freedom inside of that, the liberties that you can take inside of it are minimal. And you don't get the opportunity to mold that as much if you are you know, in that more stratified piece and have the linear progression in it. And I think it's a really good way to look at truthfully careers the way they are today and how they're evolving in that Mm -hmm. it's not the, I'm an anomaly. I'm 40. I've been in the same job for almost 17 years. I'm an anomaly these days in the sense that people don't stay that long. It's not the days of our parents where you stayed for 40 years and got a gold watch at the end. Right. Look, you are much more of a view of the modern working world in the sense that finding that niche and building on it. And I think 
yeah, maybe you say at 35, it might not hit the same way if you're creating that content, but you've already built that established following and it'll evolve with you. There's a million directions that I could take this, but to get you out of here on this is what's the thing that excites you most about sports as you do this day to day? For me, it's the ability to tell stories that wouldn't otherwise get told. So I'll relate this in a couple of ways. First on the marketing agency side, the clients that we work with are not the MLBs, MBAs, NFLs of the world. <laughs> Jake, my business partner and I often talk about how we can't just post a highlight so we work, we work with the baseball league. I'll give you an example. And we can't just post a highlight of a home run and say, wow, isn't this crazy? He had a home run to win this game because it's a relatively unknown league. You know, it's a, it's a partner league to the uh, MLB, which means it's not a minor league affiliated team. It's one of these, what were traditionally called independent teams. So these are guys that are still professionals, but are trying to work their way back onto into an MLB organization. And so when they hit a home run, you can't just post a video and say, Cool, right? Because nobody really knows the players. They don't know the stakes. They don't know the standings. They don't know, you know, the history the the player might have had with the other team. Like there's no additional context baked in. And so the MLB, NBA, NFL, NHL, these professional sports leagues, the major four are in a really fortunate spot because if there's a fight that breaks out between two guys, we have a pretty good understanding of what their history was. There needs to be no extra explanation. And so in our ability as a you know marketing function for these leagues to create really compelling content that both tells the story, shares the context, but then also highlights the play is a really fun puzzle to try to figure out. It's like fitting these jigsaws that you don't know if it's going to work well. You don't know if people are going to be receptive to it. You don't know if you're over explainer explaining or under explaining, but man, when it all works out and you have a piece of content that works well, promotes a guy, shares his story that wouldn't otherwise get told, that's like a dopamine hit, like no other for me. And so, you know, that part is is super cool. And on the content creation side, it's somewhat related, but acting as a sort of Trojan horse, I think that's the analogy that comes to mind as we talked here, to share what my interests are and to be a person that's deeper than just a sports fan. I would say that when somebody looks at me and hears like this guy makes content about sports, they probably think like, He's just another guy with a microphone that spouses off about who should have won the MVP this year. And that's not who I am. And I love that I'm able to share some of my interests that go a little deeper and may become a little unexpected to people. And it's cooler that people care about those sorts of things. And sports are a vehicle that I can do that through. And without sports, nobody would listen to what I have to say. I can use them as a backdrop on everything. And if I'm able to relate them to another interest I have, then that's fantastic. And, and the fact that people even care about that is, is, is the coolest feeling. So that connective tissue is just, I just don't think it really exists in our culture anymore. And I don't mean to turn this into some like grand stand speech about like where our country is headed, but I will end on the fact that sports seem to be one of the last remaining connective tissues that we have. And it's cool to be able to play in that space and, and use them as ways to let people know that they have more in common than indifferent because we can get rally around a, a jersey. And I think that is a great way to bring it all together because it's true. It is one of the last, you know, vestiges of life today that we have a common understanding, common shared values. And I think that the the point that you make about the content that you create, it's not for people that are looking for hard stats or who do you think is going to win this. But I also think that inherently in people, they have the interest in those topics, but it's not as easy. It's not as easy to just 
dig into those topics as it is to just pick out the headlines or pick out who was the number one pick in the draft or who won this game. And so I think Mm -hmm. it caps into a subconscious that people want anyway, which I think is why it's so interesting, why it's so valuable. And speaking of those things, tell the listeners where they can find you. Sure. So I make content on TikTok every single day at Tyler M. Webb. There's a couple of periods thrown in there. Um, I, I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me, Tyler Webb, there. I've tried to use that as a vehicle to uh, share a little bit of the background into my creator journey, just into my business journey in general. Um, I, I just try to be very honest. I almost use it as like content creator therapy to say, like, hey, this video sucked. Here's what I was thinking. Can you get, can you give me any help? Um, I have kind of built a really cool community there where, you know, just the other day I talked about a YouTube video I posted that didn't do as well as I wanted. And people came over the top with some really cool feedback on the thumbnail and title and concept. And that was just super cool to me. And so that's, I'm trying to be as transparent as transparent as possible. Cause I'm just trying to figure this out. Like everybody else, as you say, this is sort of, I think emblematic of what work could look like going forward. And we're all doing it for the first time together. And it's, it's cool to be able to figure it out with other people. Um, and I'd also encourage people to go check out my newsletter, bottom of the ninth. Um, it's on Substack, but can be delivered straight to your inbox. I promote it all the time, but you can find it the link in my TikTok bio. Um, another place for me to sort of be able to get a little off topic in ways that are interesting to me. So if you find any of my content interesting, you might find some of the threads I explore there interesting. And then I also have a podcast with my business partner, Jake, called Sportonomics available wherever you listen to podcasts that that really is the the place where we sort of explore topics that might not do well you know what we try to do is or i'm increasingly trying to do is like exist outside of an algorithm right now i'm sort of beholden to talking about victor Wembanyama, and while i find the topic interesting i also know it's going to do well because he's going to be the the topic of the night during the nba draft but on a podcast or on a uh newsletter or even on linkedin i can sort of exist outside of an algorithm and explore things that might not perform as well to a mass audience. But if you're at all interested in sports and business, um, we really dig into those things with our teeth a little bit more than a two minute TikTok video and might be worth checking out. It is worth checking out. And I I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. I think it's enormously insightful for all of our listeners because again, it really is the future of work in some ways. And I think it's amazing how you've crafted that past. We very much appreciate your time today, Tyler. And thank you for giving all the insight that you did. Thank you, Bryce. I really enjoyed it.